0: I'm Teresa Huizar, your host of One in Ten. This week's episode, I spoke with Danielle Rubinoff, professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California. Now, when we think of COVID-19 and this pandemic, we hardly think of an upside or a silver lining. But what if there was one? What if this pandemic really could catalyze research into early childhood adversity? Certainly, this is a time when children have never faced more adversity than right now, and researchers are particularly honed in to the effects of the pandemic. In a letter to JAMA Pediatrics in August, Professor Rubinoff laid out a research manifesto. It touched on many things, but key among them, we should really measure the support level that caregivers are receiving and giving, and particularly how they're coping their mental health. And also, how does resiliency get measured and promoted so that we can make sure as future adversity arises, we know how to help kids build resiliency? As we think about all the ways the pandemic has upended our world, can we also discover the hopeful ways the world has changed too? So as you know, I um, saw your, is it a letter? a, um, yeah. (laughs) And, you know, one of the things that uh, I thought about when I read it, it was a little bit like a research manifesto, which I loved, you know, really giving some great advice about that. And I'm just wondering, how did you begin to think about sort of the intersection between the pandemic and ACEs? And I'm going to stop you right there, even before you start to say, some of our listeners may not be as familiar with ACEs. Can you just Briefly describe what they are and their impact and then talk about how you thought the pandemic might influence, impact, or affect them. Absolutely. So
1: ACEs refer to adverse childhood experiences, which are traumatic or stressful events that children and families may experience um, specific to the the childhood period. So really anything prior to the age of 18. And they can include such experiences as um, exposure to childhood maltreatment or abuse, um, having a parent who is incarcerated or or has a mental illness, exposure to domestic violence. So really a a, a wide variety of uh, traumatic, stressful experiences that children might have during those those formative years of life. And one of the things that really got me thinking about that question of the intersection of ACEs and the pandemic is really thinking about this pandemic has ubiquitous effects for all of us in a way that's really unprecedented. It would be challenging to find anybody who hasn't said that their life has been disrupted in one way or another, but it really got me thinking to the ways in which um, children and families who are already going through stressful experiences, who already have a, a history of adversity and have and have had to um, navigate challenges in their daily lives, how they may be uniquely impacted by the added stressors of this pandemic in ways that other individuals perhaps without that history of ACEs might, might not
0: be. Could you just give like one example of what that might look like?
1: Absolutely. For example, we... Know that children who who have had difficult early life experiences they um, oftentimes are not afforded the same sort of educational resources that other children may be and obviously for, for for many children almost all children, this pandemic has disrupted their access to educational resources, but those who are reared in environments with um, access to higher quality education may have the tools and technology for remote learning, but that might not be available to children who are in more disadvantaged environments, whose educational experiences may be much more disrupted than other families.
0: Sure. You have families that are already vulnerable, and in many cases they've experienced a job loss or other tremendous financial pressure, and the way in which that sort of can build a pressure cooker environment within the home is something that we think about a lot. And it's still a factor, you know, within the pandemic when you think about 30 million people being unemployed right now. And I think that it's wise for all of us to be thinking about the way in which if a child or family has been struggling, you know, this is only exacerbating that. I think we could go down almost every ACE and talk about the way the stressors have been amplified. But I'm also wondering about the pandemic's effect on resiliency factors, and what are you seeing there? Oh, that's such a great question, and
1: I love that you asked that question because one thing that I've thought a lot about is our tendency during this pandemic to measure and focus on the negative consequences, and I certainly believe that that is absolutely necessary. We need to understand the consequences that this pandemic has on children and families. So I certainly don't want to disregard research uh, in that realm. But I I think oftentimes we tend to focus on those negative consequences with less attention to some of the the positive um, resilience promoting factors that are also helping Individuals navigate these challenges. I am focusing in my own research and and hearing colleagues also focusing on um, the various factors that we know to be resilience promoting. And so for children, one of those in particular that has shown through research to be one of the the most significant is the positive supportive relationship with the primary caregiver or parent. So we're certainly um, spending a lot of time and attention trying to understand and measure that. Other types of um, strong relationships with other important individuals, whether that be um, other families, members, teachers, um, uh, other supports in the environment are are certainly resilience promoting. For many families, that might also be religious or spiritual practices that promote resilience. And so those are are certainly some of the things that we think about trying to to measure during this pandemic, Um, as well as practical, instrumental support for parents in particular. Um, Do you have support from your job or employer to take time off when you need to? Uh, do you have access to food if you're, if you're food insecure? Um, for this pandemic in particular, um, what is your ability to social distance and, and engage in the types of hygiene practices
0: that we know are important for uh, keeping families safe? You know, it's interesting because when you're talking, I'm thinking about it operates at so many levels. You know, it's the the level of our basic needs being met, right? And then there's the piece of it that's about whether relationships are really strong and being strengthened. And then there's a the piece of it that's more policy, right? It's operating at kind of a institutional or even larger uh, policy mechanism. One of the things when you were talking about the importance of school and teachers though, to, to chat about that for a minute, we had uh, Sherry Hamby on our podcast, I don't know, a few m- months ago, and she was talking about poly strengths and her own research about the importance, the critical importance, really, that a positive relationship with a teacher and the school experience as a whole can really have on a kid who otherwise is really, really struggling. And it can, you know, really alter outcomes. And if we think about, you know, our own lives, we can think about very important teachers to us. You know, what are you anticipating or tracking or thinking about in terms of how that has changed now? that that interaction in many cases has moved to a virtual environment? One of the things that
1: myself and colleagues and, and I know people at other academic institutions are really trying to understand and measure children's remote learning experiences during this time. So again, really getting down into the very the very weeds. Do families have access to high-speed Wi-Fi, which is often necessary when you're engaging in more intensive um, you know, video-based activities? Um, how much time are they spending in educational activities? How much time are parents able to support their children? Because for, for many children, it's not the case that they just can you know, sit in front of a, a computer screen unsupervised and attend school. So um, really trying to understand the the details of those remote learning experiences so that over time, As we uh, measure different facets of children's development and their educational attainment, we understand um, what they went through during this time.
0: Well, and I think there's one piece of it that's around the disparity of that, you know, I grew up in a small town where my mom still lives, and she works for the school district there, although not as a teacher and she was telling me that during the shutdown. Because the um, access to broadband is so weak there, parents were driving students and sitting in the parking lot of the school in order to have enough internet connectivity to actually be taught or sitting in the parking lot of the library. And I mean, really sort of extraordinary efforts when you also think that, you know, parents need to work. And, you know, so how are they doing that sitting in the parking lot of the school, of course, Um, But really those extraordinary efforts and I think also thinking about how sustainable some of that is long term like you could do that for a couple of months but Can we really do that in an entire semester or an entire year? Um, And what additional stressors that places on families I think but then there's the other part of it Which is about the relationship, you know when I think about how important my teachers were to me they were interacting with me constantly all day every day and you know virtual learning is just very different in that context. Do you know whether researchers are actually looking as they're exploring the the effect of this on students' education? are they looking specifically at that teacher student relationship? I,
1: I believe they are trying to track measures of the degree to which um, you know even children very young children can report on the sense of a, a positive relationship with their child or teacher warmth um, in in previous research that I've done with colleagues um, as early as kindergarten there are assessments that we can use to understand children's own experience of their relationship with their teachers and and just as you uh, alluded to earlier we found in that in, in that research that that sort of warm supportive relationship with the teacher does exert a, a protective effect and so in particular We found that children who were reared in a little harsher family environments, ones in which they did not have particularly positive relationships with their parents, if they had a warm and supportive relationship with their teacher, um, they actually did not um, develop some of the the same behavior problems as children who uh, didn't have that warm and supportive relationship with their teacher. So um, I certainly think there are efforts to continue to try to, to measure the degree to which that sort of teacher support can continue in this remote learning context, despite the fact that it is certainly so much more challenging.
0: Speaking of challenging, one of the things that I was thinking about when I was reading your sort of research agenda was the challenge of the constant morphing of this pandemic. I mean, even the pandemic we're experiencing now is not, it doesn't feel like the same (laughs) what we were experiencing in certain parts of March. And I'm anticipating that there will continue to be changes. How does that challenge setting forth an ambitious um, research agenda when it does feel like there's not necessarily solid ground under our feet?
1: what we try to do is think about assessing children in a longitudinal design. And what I mean by that is repeated assessments over time, because exactly as you were saying, um, the types of stressors and, and challenges that a family might experience in month one or month two of this pandemic are likely to be very different in month six or month seven. You know, in month one or two, oftentimes we're thinking of about the more acute stressors, the uncertainty when we didn't even quite understand what this pandemic was. You know, in month six or seven, you know, we're thinking more about the chronic nature of the, the stressors that families might be experiencing due to longer term unemployment, exposure to poverty. Um, we know that parent mental health concerns are significantly higher right now. And of course, parent mental health is, is such a a robust influence on children's mental health, that, that that's something that we're we're also thinking about trying to, to measure over, over time and, and repeatedly to understand how that changes as the shape of the pandemic changes.
0: You know, you've been talking about the way that stressors change over time. I'm thinking also that protective factors and resiliency, you know, uh, factors may as well. You noted that resiliency factors and protective factors are just not really studied as well as certain other things. And I'm just wondering, why do you think that is? Why do you think it just has not had quite the investment yet? Because it's so critically important.
1: Yes, it's such a great question. And certainly one I've I've pondered on several occasions. In some ways, um, I, I think there is an an effort at least early on to try to identify the problem if we if we know the 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 prevalence rate of something, that is what helps us understand where to focus our our efforts in in terms of both public health and policy. So in that way, a lot of energy is put on, you know, documenting uh, rates of exposure to adversity, rates of of children's behavior problems, and, and then understanding the factors that contribute to those things as a means for identifying intervention and prevention efforts. And I think just with that focus, of, okay, if we document the problem, so we understand where to put our efforts, sometimes the focus on the, the resilience just gets a little bit, it gets a little bit lost. Mm, mm. The other thing that sometimes happens is um, there, there can be a tendency, for example, if we are measuring an outcome like parent depression. Sometimes there can be a tendency to think if we have these rates of depression, great, it's excellent that we know that. And then we also know um, how many individuals don't experience depression. And there can be a tendency there to equate the absence of depression with a positive outcome, life satisfaction, optimism, things like that. But that's not necessarily the case. It's not necessarily the case that the absence of depression is something Good. It might be, but um, but we we actually do need to measure those positive outcomes and protective factors, and not infer that the absence of something negative is something positive.
0: Right. You might not have high well-being just because you're not depressed, is what you're saying. <laughs> Which, yeah. Yes. We can think of examples of that, right? Even in, you know, in people we know and encounter. So that's it's interesting that you point that out. That sometimes we don't think about that though until it's really pointed out to us. I wonder if some of the other piece of it is, I'm not sure how familiar people are with research around polystrengths and the understanding that, you know, you can predict outcomes as well by looking at polystrengths as you can by polyvictimization, for example. And I I think a lot of people find that counterintuitive. They would not predict that. They would not think that Well, you could go through many, many, many horrible things, but if you have many, many, many strengths, you may do just as well as someone who went through fewer terrible things or those kinds of things. I just don't even know that that research really has had widespread attention outside academic circles.
1: Yes, I completely agree with that. I think there are little pockets of it here and there. For example, there are movements around positive psychology mm-hmm. and the psychology of well-being, but it is certainly not nearly as robust as some of the research that we have on adversities and, and psychopathology and understanding the nature of, of atypical development.
0: Yeah, well, and also, I'm not sure that people initially entirely believe (laughs) that if you help a child build strengths, because some of the things that are recommended feel individually in and of themselves relatively minor, you know, that that's going to have this sort of lifetime trajectory change, even though it turns out that that. If that can be the case. So you're not really thinking, well, if I can just help them develop a better relationship with a teacher, another trusted adult, or if I can, you know, if they're a person of faith, I can really encourage their further participation there. Or if they need more support, I can encourage this kid to get involved more in group sports or in a club or, you know, whatever that those combination of things, I guess is what I'm saying, can have such a profound impact on a child's well being. So I don't know what it's going to take to get us all to believe that. but (laughs) I think we need to. Absolutely. One of my
1: favorite researchers in resilience is a psychologist by the name of Ann Mastin. And one of the things that she said that I've just always carried with me is she has described resilience or processes of resilience as ordinary magic. And I I love love, that. love, Love, love that. And the reason I love that is because it really is magical. When you think about the ways in which we are able to overcome these sometimes really significant adversities, really significant traumas. It's Those processes are are pretty magical, but at the same time, that specifier of ordinary in that she really captures that we're doing these things on a day-to-day basis. And exactly as you described, Sometimes it doesn't mean that they are these really significant or time-consuming efforts. Sometimes it's that one special relationship with the teacher. It's um, the evening routine that a family has of sitting around a dinner table. Um, It is the regular Sunday services at a religious institution
0: that they go to. It's ordinary in a way, but it's also magical. It's sort of calming to hear that. I mean, even as you're saying it, it's encouraging and calming because you're thinking, you know, we can all do that for people in our lives, right? Something extraordinary is not being asked of us. And the same thing is really true for the kids we serve. I think sometimes because we serve a population where the kids have been abused, and in many cases, sexually abused. And you can imagine the non-offending caregivers completely worn out, exhausted, and emotionally at a low point. The thought of doing one more thing, right, can feel a little bit overwhelming. So I think it's very encouraging that the one more things that's being asked of us and that we're asking of others, maybe things are already doing, you know, and they also may be... Um, things that are going unrecognized, but are actually occurring, or other things that would be small and able to be amplified in that way. So I'm personally finding that comforting during these pandemic times when everything is feeling like a little too, too, too much. I want to turn a moment now to caregiver mental health. Can you just lay out for us the importance of that, to the well-being of kids, and what you were seeing during the pandemic related to that? The
1: early emerging research is certainly suggesting that rates of um, mental health issues are rising quite a bit, depression, anxiety, among the general adult population. But we know that um, about two-thirds of the, the adult population with mental health problems are also parents. And certainly, I think, Parents are under a particular amount of stress and and perhaps uh, developing symptoms of depression and anxiety related to all of those reasons that we were just discussing, the the difficulties of um, trying to manage remote learning for their child. They're trying to perhaps juggle their own full-time job while trying to also be their their children's teacher. So you're certainly seeing those elevated rates of, of mental health issues among parents. And also in that same context, oftentimes a, a decrease in access. And so um, it's you know the combination of the, the increase in, in mental health issues while perhaps not having access to those same types of supports that they were um, used to have or, or able to access prior to the pandemic. We know that parent mental health issues are a, a pretty robust risk factor for children's own mental health issues and behavioral issues but I think what's important to recognize is that it's it's not a one-way street in that it's not just the case that the direction goes from parent to, to child, but we know that children also exert an effect on their parents and the elevated rates of, of issues that we're seeing among children then in turn kind of subsequently affect parents. And so it can really be this transactional, reciprocal relationship that develops over time that is certainly the basis for wanting to intervene for both members of the dyad.
0: You know, I noticed in looking at your list of research publications that you've done a lot of work on maternal depression in particular. Where did that interest come from?
1: It came actually from um, experiences that I had as a as a graduate student working on a study of postpartum depression among uh, lower-income Mexican-American women who, because of um, their ethnic minority status and because of chronic poverty, are at elevated risk of developing depression during that early postpartum period. At the same time, so within the context of that study, we were actually doing home visits with these women. We were going into their their homes, their their living environments, and interviewing them and um, observing the way that they interacted with their children. And while we certainly saw a a variety of risk factors and um, some negative outcomes that we know to be associated with maternal depression, it was also the case that among these women, we were seeing a lot of resilience and positive protective factors, particularly related to their cultural context and the, the, the strength that they, they drew from their cultural beliefs and their, their family relationships. So it was from that experience that I, I really became interested in maternal depression as um, a, a specific source of, of risk that children may be exposed to um, during the early years of life, but one that I was also interested in understanding: um, what are the resilience-promoting factors that are protective when children are exposed to maternal depression?
0: And what did you find?
1: Um, great question. <laughs> we are certainly we're we're certainly still studying that, um, but I would say a few things. Uh, one is that you know, in many of these families, there was a supportive relationship um, with a partner. And that supportive relationship with a partner was not only protective for mom um, in her, her own adjustment following the birth of the child, but it also tended to reduce the risk of negative outcomes among children who were exposed to, to maternal depression. So it involved um, supportive partner was um, resilience promoting for both members of the, the diet.
0: So interesting. I also noticed that some of your research interests, including currently, seem to involve the relationship between moms and toddlers, those first, first early years. You know, again, you could have picked any age, right? Moms are important our whole life long. Um, but why did you pick those very earliest years? Mm-hmm. I I
1: really became interested in those early toddlerhood years for a couple of reasons. One is because while a lot of research has focused on postpartum depression and understanding women's experience, kind of specific to that first year after the birth of the child, there is some compelling research that's showing that risk for maternal depression also tends to be elevated during those toddlerhood and early preschool period. And I think there are a number of of theories around why that may be occurring. Um, one of the things that we've also found from research is that rates of parenting difficulties and parent-child conflict does tend to go up a bit during those toddlerhood and early preschool years as children are you know, navigating their ways through trying to find increased independence and, and autonomy. I really became interested in the the dynamic between mothers and their children during that period. Um, and again, thinking about that transactional relationship. So mm. not only thinking about the ways in which mothers may be affecting their children's development during that time period, but then also thinking about the ways that children's behavior in turn affects
0: moms. Oh, I believe it. Uh, my mother said that my first word was no. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm sure she would have had a lot to say on this subject if she had been a part of your study. Um, so no doubt. Uh, you know, one of the things I was reading about and interested in was your ABC intervention. And I know you're in the middle of this, this project. And so, you know, maybe you can't uh, talk about certain aspects of it, but whatever you can. I'm just, I think partially because it did involve moms and kids. And also, it seemed like there was a telehealth component of that. Um, which I think is just so fascinating. We're uh, right now have so many sort of telehealth-related experiments going on around the country that when I saw that, I thought, I've got to ask about that. So what is it and what are you finding?
1: Absolutely. So ABC stands for Attachment and Biobehavioral Catch-Up, and it is a uh, 10-week home visiting intervention that was originally developed by Mary Dozier at the University of Delaware. And there have been a variety of amazing research studies demonstrating the ways in which this um, program, which really focuses on the dynamic between parents and children and improving the parent-child relationship during the the, the toddlerhood and preschool years can be beneficial and, and helpful to families. So in in this particular study, pre-pandemic, uh, we were actually doing those home visits. So we were going into the homes and working with um, mothers and their children. And of course, like so many other researchers in this space, um, because of the pandemic, we had to very quickly shift. And it was actually, you know, an, an interesting uh, kind of dilemma: whether to pause the research altogether mm. or to try to adapt this program, which has Always been done in a home visiting model. It has never been done in any telehealth or any other context. And to really think about should we give this a a shot here, Um, particularly when we're thinking about working with little ones, you know, two to four year olds who, you know, there were questions around how well will they be able to sit in front of a screen and and engage with us and, and engage with mom. But As it became clear that uh, this pandemic was not going to be a short-term stressor, that we were really going to be trying to navigate this new normal for quite a while, Uh, we made the decision to try to shift into a a telehealth model. And I will say that we have been pleasantly surprised by how well it's gone. We certainly don't have... um, enough findings to be able to say that the effects of the, the telehealth version of the intervention are the exact same or, or, or comparable to the, to the home um, visiting version, but the preliminary results do suggest that we are able to deliver this intervention with the same level of quality and confidence in a telehealth model
0: than as compared to the home visiting model. You just love when you're surprised by something like that. It's just great. You're like, oh, my God, who would have thought?
1: Right. And, you know, in in chatting with other individuals in the home visiting space, you know, I've heard many of them say, you know, kind of this idea of a a silver lining to this pandemic, that this has really pushed the, the home visiting model ahead by 10 years maybe more because there there was discussion about trying to deliver some of these home visiting interventions by telehealth pre-pandemic but it was really just some kind of initial discussions and and as people were reflecting on where we are now they were really thinking gosh you know i think otherwise it would have taken us 10 plus years to consider doing these interventions by telehealth and suddenly here we are and we're making it work and we're collecting research to understand the effects but now we have the potential to reach families we may not otherwise ever be able to reach if we were only doing home visiting
0: i just love it you know it's so interesting to hear you talk about that because it so mirrors our experience with telemental health services and you know our field We had some pilot projects out there prior to the pandemic, and then overnight, every CAC had to become capable of delivering mental health care virtually, and they did. And the studies so far are really showing that it's as clinically effective and that family engagement rates are actually higher. So, you know, who knew? It's, uh, as you say, it is a silver lining of this whole horror show is that it's really forced us to innovate and I think that's going to have some long-term benefits for families.
1: I absolutely agree and and again, I think we are very much realizing that while we are able to reach perhaps some families, some rural communities that we might not otherwise reach, there are certainly still families who do not have um, the access to technology that would be oh, needed. Absolutely. Um, and so while it opens these doors, it also uncovers, okay, where are the areas that we still Still need to be expanding access? How do we provide families with the access to technology, whether it's a laptop or the iPad or the hotspot or, or whatever it is that for them is, is serving as a barrier for them to be able to access these services?
0: I think you really raise a good point, which is that we don't want to just be replicating disparities that already exist, right? So part of it is about really thinking through how do you make sure that you're not just creating an all new system of disparity.
1: Right, right, absolutely. And I think the same is being um, observed in the context of distance learning. I know that yes. in the, the Bay Area, there are efforts to better understand um, the uh, technology options that families have and to try to make sure that we are leveling the playing field in a, in a way and providing all families with the access
0: to technology that they need to engage in distance learning. That's so critical. So let me ask you another question, you know, not that there's not enough on your research agenda here, but what's really piquing your interest right at the moment? What are you finding particularly exciting to think about and sort of, you know, beyond current projects you're in, you're going, you know, I'm really thinking that idea is one I want to explore next.
1: I have to say with the opportunity to deliver this home visiting intervention in a, uh, Telehealth manner—that is the piece that I think I am I am most excited about right now because it potentially opens the door to for this particular study. You know, we've been limited geographically to families that are that are in the Bay Area, but in, in thinking about a telehealth version of this intervention, uh, that's not necessarily the case. People could be anywhere and still receive this intervention so um, so that's one of the things that I think is is most exciting to me the other piece of it that I'm excited about and really passionate about is there's an area of my research where I'm also very interested in understanding the um, the kind of biological mechanisms that underlie the relation between adversity, exposure, and children's development. So that idea that these stressful experiences can get under people's skin in a way that affects their physical and mental health. There are um, a variety of of studies, um, my own and and colleagues, um, that are really working to understand the Biological implications of this type of adversity exposure, and also um, the ways in which our biology might be working as a protective or resilience promoting factor. So, those areas of research I think are very, very exciting. Well,
0: we'll stay tuned for more on that. And you know, when you published this research agenda, you know, your primary audience was other researchers, right? And so it was served in a lot of ways as an invitation to colleagues to come forward and do that. I'm wondering if you were to think about an open letter to policymakers, what would be your advice to folks on Capitol Hill or even in state legislatures to say where investments should be made?
1: Mm -hmm. Great, great question. Um, I think a few areas come to mind. One of the, the... first things that popped into my head when you asked that question is in supporting parents and parent mental health. Um, You know, for example, we provide this intervention. We see these families for one hour a week for 10 weeks. And I have no doubt that this intervention is is helpful and, and is supportive, but parents are with their children. The other 23 hours of the day other the right. other 60s a week. And we, we know from research that they have the ability to exert such a strong influence on their children's lives. But we know at the same time right now that parents are... Really struggling. I mean, parenting is hard no matter what. And and you just can imagine what parents are going through in the midst of this pandemic. So I think really thinking about one of the best ways to reach children is through their parents. And that children's mental health and children's development very necessarily needs to be parent mental health and and family well-being. So so really thinking about investing in parents. The other area that comes to mind for me is early intervention. I mean, and that's certainly not anything new, but we we know that those first um, several years of life are just so absolutely formative to children's development and and exert a lasting influence. And so um, the ways in which we can start a positive trajectory very, very early on in life through investment in, in early intervention and and prevention and screening is is just exceptionally
0: important. You know, I'm going to close with the question that I ask everyone, which is, I'm not a researcher. You know, I've read some of your material, but I'm not you. So what's what haven't I asked you that you wish I had covered or you go, God, that one point I really want to make, Uh, we want to give you an opportunity to make sure that everything that you wanted to say, you have an opportunity to say. Oh, thank you. That's that's such a wonderful
1: opportunity to have. It's funny. I have the incredible fortune. I am primarily a researcher. That is um, how I spend the majority of my time, but I also spend a portion of my time with a, a clinician hat on. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. So as you said that, I was trying to decide, gosh, would I want to give this message to other researchers or would I want to give this message to the parents and the, the families that I see? We'll let you do both. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I ask if I might cheat and do both. <laughs> um, Please. Yes. For researchers, I think what comes to mind is think outside the box when it comes to your research. It has been certainly very challenging for researchers and so many studies have, have been, put on hold or or parts of it have not been able to be um, conducted in the way that they typically would because of pandemic-related restrictions, but there is so much innovation that comes out of the, the necessity of doing things in a safe and socially distant manner that may carry on well after the the acute phase of this pandemic is over and, and you know the home visiting intervention that is now telehealth is is a great example of that not to say that it is easy to transition a research study to telehealth but the gains that that we may get and the information that we may get for years to come is just so incredibly powerful and the message i have to families and to parents is you're doing a great job you're doing the best you can. And that is all that anyone can ask of you right now. And just as you mentioned before, I would venture to guess that a lot of the things that that parents are doing on a day-to-day basis are resilience promoting and protective in ways that they don't even realize. I would hope that they would take a moment to think about those things and, and the ways that they are keeping themselves and their children safe and healthy right now.
0: Danielle, thank you so much for coming on to 1 in 10 and sharing your knowledge with us, and we'll look forward to seeing more of your published research. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to be here.
0: Dr. Rubinoff identified a -a once-in-a-lifetime research opportunity to come out of a global crisis. In our own field, we've seen rapid advancement in teleforensic interviewing, telemental health services, and other technology-driven services. I think we're probably 10 years ahead of where we would be absent that pandemic. So what silver linings have you found? Email us at in 10 at nca-online.org and let us know. Until next time, thanks for joining us here on One in 10.